MLR Kickoff, episode 47, with your hosts, Dan Power and Pete Steinberg. Hey folks, welcome to another show post-World Cup. Everyone back to their normal sleep patterns at last. Congratulations to South Africa, uh, deserving champions. And you know what, as I bring in Pete Steinberg, Pete, if we go back, I'm sure we can find the audio, my original pick to win it all, South Africa gets it done. How are you feeling, brother? Are you back in Colorado? Are you in Europe? Are you in Southeast Asia? Are you building uh, houses (laughs) down in Uganda? Where are you, Pete? I am actually at Cambridge University in England. I just um, spent today with the master's um, in one of the master's programs in biotechnology entrepreneurship and did a session for them today so sitting here in uh, um, a beautiful brand new building it is not what you would think when you thought of thinking about Cambridge University this is extremely modern but had uh, had a good day today um, working with some young master students well every day I get to talk to you is a good day for me as well but let's uh, (laughs) let's jump into MLR action we have a lot on the show we finally get to go to New York and preview the Rooney year and review the year. You had a chance to sit down with the best looking man in world rugby, Greg McWilliams, who is their new head coach, uh, recently announced as he returned back from the World Cup. We'll get to that a little later. But first, let's dive into the World Cup because it's in everyone's mind and you were over there on the ground in Japan for quite a while. Give us a rundown of your thoughts, uh, not only on the final, but also your time in Japan. Well, yeah, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be able to get tickets to go over um, for both semifinals. So I was there for the um, uh, um, England-New Zealand game and also for the Wales-South Africa game. And it was it was really interesting to be over in Japan because, um, honestly, in Tokyo, it's so big that it, was, um, it wasn't that easy to find World Cup stuff, Rugby World Cup stuff. Um, but it was an extremely well-run event. Um, When you got to the stadium, the volunteers were great. The atmosphere was phenomenal. Um, The interesting thing about semifinals is that lots of people have tickets to the semifinals. So they end up having, um, you know, you do the semifinals, you you saw, you know, Australian jerseys and Irish jerseys and and jerseys from all, you know, a lot of Japanese jerseys. So it was, it was, it was really great. I mean, being there for that England, New Zealand performance was, um, was really incredible. I mean, it's probably the best performance England's ever had at the World Cup, and I think including 2003. I mean, they were absolutely dominant. I don't think it would have um, been unfair if they'd won by 25, 30 points. Uh, the South Africa-Wales um, game was not as exciting, at least for the... Um, uh, for someone in the crowd. I mean, I mean, we were there watching the game, and there wasn't a lot of atmosphere. I mean there was like a ridiculous number of kicks. I mean, there was that one sort of Keystone Cops version where I think there were two block kicks in a row. But you could see that um, South Africa, you know, they had a very distinct style that they wanted to play. And, and you know, um, it, it was always close, but you kind of always felt like South Africa um, had the had the edge. So, you know, it was great to be over there. Um, I went over with a, um, a good friend who was a, national panel referee in the UK. So I got to hang out with the referees for the England New Zealand game, kind of, you know, talk about some of the, um, the TMO calls with, uh, um, you know, some of the like Luke Pierce and Wayne Barnes. So that was, that was really great. And then got to sit with a bunch of USA rugby folks for the, 
second semi-final. It was, it was a really great trip. Very happy I went there. Japan is, um, you know, a really wonderful place. And I, as, as hosts, they were absolutely phenomenal. It's going to be a, a tough uh, measuring stick to, to live up to for the next uh, couple of World Cups because all reports is uh, outstanding World Cup. Happy to have you back. And are you ready to talk a little bit of uh, New York and Major League Rugby? Well, I mean, I, well, I feel a little bit like thanks for not bringing up the final. No. I mean, I was no, up I at 3 o'clock in the morning. I think I, I, our, I do have one uh, thing. our, our I, I, offline I, chats I, have been enough punishment for you well i have I, I have one thing that i think was interesting for me in the final that i think coaching wise it's easy to see this as an as an error but you kind of saw it 20 minutes in the south african defense was very very good and south africa's game plan was to play territory and england decided not to they decided to play possession and um you could you know when with 20 minutes to go when um eddie jones subbed off george forward you could see he was like oh we need to play territory but by then it was a little bit too late if you could keep south south africa in their heart they would have won the game but because they they would they were running through phase after phase and the south african defense was holding them it allowed south africa to play in areas of the game that allowed them to play openly they can i mean so i think tactically rassi erasmus nailed that game in a mm. way that eddie jones didn't yeah um, set piece was, was interesting the thing that stood out for me Pete yeah, was a scrum. Yeah, and I know I mean, Sinclair went off with that uh, nasty concussion early in the game. And any time you have uh, disruption in the front row, it's tough at the set piece. But the scrum from South Africa was just so dominant. And especially at that level. We saw it a lot in MLR year one, a little we bit did. in year two. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the signings that are around the league later. But you can see that so much emphasis is being put on that front row in the set piece. And South Africa, that scrum in a World Cup final, was probably the most dominant scrum I've seen in a World Cup final. You know, at Absolutely. least in the professional Absolutely. era. And that was the platform they built that territory off. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk think, a little bit about fair. that as we, uh, we push through a little bit. But let's talk a little bit about New York. First, we'll review uh, 2019 and then uh, jump into the Greg McWilliams interview and then preview our thoughts and some of their signings for 2020. Pete. They do make the finals in their first year. They go 11-5. and five. Um, They sneak in, basically collapse over the line with a loss to Toronto in the last round, but other results in San Diego over New Orleans go their way. The thing that stands out as I look at their statistics and their record, Pete, um, bonus points were a big issue, and that comes from the ability to score tries. 344 points conceded, put them tied for first with the best defense in the league, them in San Diego. 433 points scored, which actually puts them all the way back into sixth best in the league, which uh, obviously when you look at the bonus points as well, was their Achilles heel throughout the year. What were your thoughts first on 2019 as a whole for Rooney? And then some of those uh, statistics that you looked into. Yeah, I mean, I think Rooney, if, you know, we have to remember that Rooney actually started um, really well. They, they came out of the gates as a, as a strong team. And then they had a bit of a lull in the middle of the season, right? And, 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 and they struggled a little bit. Um, you know, if, if you look at, and, and I think, you know, that was connected to when Cahill Marsh was out. They really struggled when he was out. He was out for two games. And then um, I think he was a sub for a third game. And then the fourth game that he played, he, he, was, he really didn't do well. I mean, they came out of the blocks really hard. You know, remember they beat San Diego in San Diego. Um, in the first game of the year, right? Then they had a double bye, which was another challenge that they had. But then they beat Nola, 
in NOLA. I mean, this is a team that really came out strong. But then, you know, they, they began to struggle, I think, um, once they got into the middle of the schedule, right? So, you know, we remember that Rooney-Austin game where they only won 19-11, right? And you look now and you're like, wow, that was a, a really um, close game. And then, of course, they lost to San Diego at home. Um, they had a very close game with um, Utah. And I think you're right. I mean, they were the number one team in territory, but they just didn't score enough points. And, of course, most of their points came from the more. I mean, Dylan Fawcett, was their um, number two in tries because their mall was so dominant and they weren't able to create line breaks. They didn't offload very much. I mean, they weren't a very dynamic attack. And if you remember correctly, it was all about sort of, we talked about it during the season. They had a very traditional attack. They were coming around the corner. If their forwards weren't able to generate go forward, they weren't able to do much. So I think that, um, you know, you're right. They really, despite the fact that they got the territory, um, despite the fact they were a, um, you know, a good defense, they just didn't score enough. And that lack of scoring is the thing that really hurt them. Yeah, you talk about Dylan Fawcett. What a season for the hooker it was. 13 tries total throughout the year, but also 11 try assists for the hooker, which again, right. kind of gives some indication <laughs> on, you know, the kind of style they were playing out there. And I'm glad you brought up Carl Marsh because I called that game down in New Orleans when uh, two undefeated sides down there. And New Orleans were running hot. Everyone's favorite team. They were putting on, you know, big scores and scoring beautiful tries with that dynamic attack that Nola Gold had. And they went down there and beat them in New Orleans. And that was, to me, the, the sign that, hey, Rooney's for real. They're going to be a, a side. But injuries just crippled them, especially through the back row. They lost uh, James Denise to a foot injury. What an unsung hero he was in 2019. Unsigned at the start of the year. And uh, I'm sure he won't mind me saying unwanted as well. Uh, he put out a lot of feelers to try to get signed with some teams, even to New York, was overlooked, and then through necessity, brought in and just had an absolutely outstanding year in 2019. But lost him, lost some back rows. I believe their centre pairing was quite uh, disrupted throughout the year with the Cowboy O'Keefe getting hurt. Uh, Leonard had some injury issues as well, I believe. And just that, you know, it's just tough when you, when you lose that midfield. Right. And, 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 and remember, you know, they were really struggling to work out what to do with Ben Foden. You know, he started it outside center and it didn't quite fit there. But when they moved into fullback, <coughs> excuse me, they, uh, um, they really played well. So I think this was sort of, you know, this was definitely an almost season for, um, for Rooney. I mean, they um, really, you know, played tough in the, uh, um, in that semi-final in San Diego. I mean, it was the try. It was probably for me, I mean, it's hard. Like you look at, you look at that playoff game and then you look at the final. I mean, these are, these were, you know, bounce of the ball games, right? They really were bounce of the ball games. So they, they were able to kind of write themselves right at the end and really played some of their best rugby, but just didn't, you know, I think it was literally, wasn't it literally a bounce of the ball into JP Duplessis' hands that allowed him to score in the corner? And then literally, yeah. I think it was. It was literally a bounce of the ball, right? And so um, 
you know, so I think that, you know, Mike Tolkien can be very proud of his year. I think there was a lot of learning that happened in Rooney. I mean, all of the stuff that they have to put up with in terms of like the travel and training, it sounds like, you know, we'll hear from Greg McWilliams a little bit later. It sounds like they've kind of got a, a, a better training spot now, a place that they can go, the place that they can kind of call their training home. And I think that'll be really important for them. So I think that an amazing season considering the challenges they had logistically. Yeah, logistically, New York's such a different beast, isn't it? We, I remember doing some games out there, and I know you were out there doing some games as well and talking to the players. They were fragmented with where they did their strength and conditioning because it wasn't possible for some of them who had jobs to make it to the facility that was designated for strength and conditioning. So it just makes it difficult uh, to, to form that team bond that other teams were having. So you know, being together all the time and training together. We know that Seattle, who obviously go back to back, were very tight knit group and all lived in the same house and all in the same area. Where New York, just those challenges that come with the big city, but also opportunity comes with the big city, right? It, it brings in players like Ben Foden, which they had, and some signings that they've addressed that with that we'll kind of dig a little deeper into in the review after we talk to Greg. But it also has lends them the opportunity to get in players, marquee players that want to be in New York City. So uh, overall, what would you give them on a grade of, uh, what do you want to do, A's, A's, B's, or one through 10 for 2019? I mean, I think, I think, I think, I think that let's, let's do ABCs. Okay. And I think that they're, I think they're, I mean, a B plus. I mean, I think that they, they, they played well. They had a bit of a dip. I think that dip is what really hurt them in terms of, um, playing San Diego first in San Diego. It's just a long way for them to go, right? Um, I think that, uh, um, you know, they, they played well with the bounce ball. So I think it's B plus, A minus. I mean, I think that they were one of the teams that had a chance to win the championship at the end. And, uh, you know, I think that if you look at the final games, you could have said, you know, Rooney could have been the, you know, um, Major League Rugby champions and you wouldn't have been that surprised, right? It oh. wouldn't have been a surprise. They, they were one of the top teams. I wish you were a teacher when I was around. I'll take an A minus any day of the week. <laughs> Great. But I, I'm, I'm going to agree with I, you. I, I think they learned some lessons in terms of how to manage the roster with depth uh, through the middle of the year. They went out and made some late signings, especially in that back row to try to address that. But as you know, once you're sliding, it's very difficult to, to put the brakes on and turn that momentum around. Well, Pete, I'm going to actually throw now to a man who has been charged with turning that around and going one game better in 2020, and that's USA Eagles assistant coach, Greg McWilliams, uh, who a very decorated coaching career, one that uh, has seen him cross your path before as well in the uh, women's game. He's being charged with taking over Rooney for 2020, and you got a chance to catch up with Greg earlier. Greg McWilliams of Rooney, thank you so much for joining us on Major League Rugby Kickoff. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's good to be uh, in and amongst it, so it's good to talk. So uh, many people don't know this, but our paths crossed um, previously at the 2014 World Cup, um, and before then, as before this call, you reminded me in 2010 um, when you were coaching Ireland and I was coaching the U.S. Women. But you just came back from your second World Cup, the Men's World Cup, and what were some of the things that surprised you about what is the beast of the Men's World Cup in Japan? I think, uh, firstly, you know, it, it was a, an amazing experience. We're very lucky that we're pretty tight as a management group and as a player group. So it made it a lot of fun. And I think, you know, my role with USA was uh, backs and attack. And 
one thing that I, you know, we couldn't prepare for was the time and space that you know the top teams take away from you when you have the ball. Um, it's quite impressive, and you know we talked about coaching against each other, Pete. I've been coaching for many years, you know, maybe twenty four years, and I think I learned more in the five weeks around the Rugby World Cup than I had in the previous twenty four years. Um, it was uh, it was a terrific experience. Obviously, you know, you want to go out and do something special whenever you coach a team and. We were hopeful that we could have picked up um, a win and we didn't get that. So obviously we're a little bit disappointed and deflated. But you look at some of the things that we did do, you know, to be competitive uh, with France, uh, to be competitive to a point with Argentina. I know it doesn't appear that way in the scoreboard, but, you know, when you leak away some soft tries, uh, it's very hard to stay competitive. So we did well, some good things. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I actually think that the first 20 minutes against France was probably the best 20 minutes, at least in my experience, the U.S. has played at a World Cup um, because in that 20 minutes, we actually dominated France. We didn't take our opportunities. And, you know, the kick chase, um, I think it was on the 18th minute or 19th minute that France, you know, broke us on a kick chase. But prior to that, we had territory, we had possession, and we had opportunity. And I think, you know, as you said, it's the time and space and the ability to repeat that over and over again that our players just don't get to experience enough. Oh, I mean, look, I've been with USA for uh, two years now, and I'm including the Scottish game that we won. Nothing, nothing was like the intensity of, of playing against the top teams. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's a lot of learnings for me. I think, you know, obviously Coach McGarry was terrific. We had a good group of, uh, good group of players. And, and I just think, you know, we need to be aware that every nation is improving and every nation is throwing in a lot of resources, particularly to their underage setup and the coaching that their players get from the ages of 16 to 20. And, you know, I, I think that's very, very noticeable that while we're improving, so is everybody else. So um, it was just, uh, you know, so many learnings to take from it. But all in all, I mean, I'd love to go back and do it all again. Well, you know, I wonder if you took that team and you headed back to Japan and you did it again, I think what you would see is... Uh, a much closer games. I think that playing those tier one nations regularly is one of the things that, that we miss. And of course, you know, um, I don't know many people realize this, that, you know, the four days before the U.S. played Tonga, I think you were practicing in the hotel because that was when the typhoon was there. So there was zero opportunity to do anything before you went into the game against Tonga. So it wasn't just a recovery issue. It was a prep issue. So even, I think, I think with that challenge, I thought the team's, performance against Tonga, although disappointing because we all wanted to win, was actually quite strong. But four, four days before the Tonga game, we were playing against Argentina. You know, that was our shortest turnaround. Tonga had, I think, seven days and we had pretty much three. Right. And, you know, like there was a stage, momentum is a very funny thing in sport. You know, it's very powerful when you have positive momentum, but it's also very powerful, nearly more powerful when you have negative momentum. I think back at the Tonga game, we were 12-10 up on the 65th minute we are going through our 19th phase. We're at the five-meter line of Tonga. We knocked the ball on where we could have gone to that, you know, 17 or maybe even get more than a try, a converted try ahead. We coughed the ball forward. They did two passes, kicked the length of the field and scored to make it 17-12. And when you have a team who were on their last legs where we wouldn't have the same depth possibly as other teams, um, I think that was just a, a, you know, a turning point for the guys where it's very hard to come back from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, absolutely. You know, so a, a lot to learn from. I think, you know, 
the key thing as as a union and, and as a coaching and, and player group right the way across the board is that while it's fresh in our minds, we're putting together these reports to make sure that we learn from this experience. But you know yourself, Pete, nothing beats playing against, you know, tier one as they're perceived, nations. Um, because as I said to you, now after being at the Rugby World Cup, I'd love to go back and alter my training sessions a little bit. Right. Um, Right, you know, I've been very clear on, on what I could do to improve our attack, and it's just something that you have to experience that sometimes, and uh, and it was an experience that was important. But I just wish again that we are able to to do something special. But onwards and upwards, uh, you know, we have to get ready for 2023 now, and for me, it's a case of just switching gears now and going into the MLR. So you know, let's talk about that. Um, you know, you've been appointed the uh, head coach of Rooney, taken over from an, another um, former U.S. coach, Mike, Mike Tolkien. Um, you know, what, is, what have your first few weeks been like and, and, and what have you tried to accomplish? You know, firstly, I think Mike did a great job uh, with uh, Keith. You know, getting to the semifinal in your first year of operations is, is incredibly impressive. impressive. You know, for me now as a goal, I mean, that would certainly be a goal for me. If if we could get to the semi-final again, it would be a very successful season, particularly now when there's more competitive teams. Um, you know, on the way back from Japan, I was already, you know, getting my head around um, connecting with the players. I tried to do nothing when I was uh, away in Japan. I wanted to concentrate on what my primary goal was, um, you know, which was USA. So it's a case of trying to do a lot in the last three weeks. I officially started on the 1st of November, but as I said to you, when I landed in USA after the Rugby World Cup, I straight into it. Um, you know, you're trying to get your player group together, making sure that you're, you've got depth in key positions. And then you're trying to make sure that you have a management team in place and a staff in place. And our sole purpose is to support the players to try and put on some entertainment every week when we play and you know, as well as I do, Pete, it's not an easy thing to do. So there's going to be challenges ahead. There are um, increased talent coming into the league. There are clubs that are becoming more established. I already like the way a lot of teams play. So, you know, we're under no illusion. This is going to be one hell of a league. And uh, I'm just looking forward to getting stuck into preseason now. Because there's, there's been a lot of change in the organization. And that's something that, you know, appealed to me was coming in and trying to and bring my experience and try to you know come together as as an organization with with one goal and align as an entity and that's um that's always the exciting thing about rugby and hopefully results will be something that can be a byproduct of that well you know you've got some um star power in the uh rooney team and, and, and one of the big additions that's coming up this year is um uh, Matteo um, Bastereau from France, who um, has played France at the centre, but um, I've heard he's playing at number eight. Uh, have you had any um, opportunity to connect with him? And do you have any ideas about where you would play him? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, my job is to connect with every single player who's on our books and those who I'm looking at to bring in. So I've watched pretty much every single action of, of um, Bastas over the last two and a half weeks. And I've communicated with him at length. You know, he's just excited to come over to the league. He's very keen on leaving a legacy. Um, so, yeah, he's playing number eight for Lyon at the moment. And they're thriving in, in the French league. Um, ideally, I'd like to play him at centre. But, you know, to have somebody coming over who can play 
a couple of positions is obviously advantageous. I think uh, while it's great to have the likes of Bastro or or Ben Foden or a few other players that are coming in, I think the true strengths of what we can do are players 15 to 35. Um, it's great to have a star. Most MLR sides will have star players, but it's that 15th, 16th game in a row or the eighth game when you're playing away from home and you've got to rely on players who aren't your star players. So we've got to be very clear on building a, a, an entire squad who will understand exactly what our DNA is and what we all need to do in order to perform. So having stars is great, but it won't build a team and we've got to be very aware of that. And Bastro um, is going to come over and work as hard as everybody else. Otherwise, there'll be no place for my, for Bastro on the 15. So he's very aware of, of the importance of, of keeping fit and staying fit. But, you know, it's his experience that I'm just so excited to share with the players because talking to him, he's... He's infectious about what he wants to do with New York, and I'm excited to bring him over and, and let him loose. Greg, love love you laying down the law so early. Um, uh, need to make sure that uh, you get fit um, to get a step on the field. So that's that's great. You know, one of the challenges that we always have as coaches is that we have a philosophy about um, how we think the game should be played, but we yeah. also generally have a player pool that is given to us and, and coming on, you know, I, I know you've had discussions over the summer, but relatively late, you know, um, Rooney's squad is, is what it is. Um, what should we expect in terms of um, how, how the team's going to play and, and how might you adjust sort of what your natural philosophy is based on, on who you have on the squad? Whoa, that's a, that's a pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty loaded question there, Pete. Um, Look, I think I'd like any- to point out, Greg, that you told me I'll talk about anything. Like I was going to lay out yeah. what we were going to talk I'm, about, and you said listen, I'll talk about anything. So I'm like, I, here's anything. I listen. I, I listen to a lot of uh, a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of shows, and I don't like coaches who just say stereotypical things and they nod their head, and the and the session is over. I love I love getting as deep as I feel I can. Um, you know, any team that's going to compete in any league. It's something I've had to experience through failure is you can't do anything without a set piece and you can't do anything without a strong defensive line and a, an understanding of how the game is played and why you play in certain areas of the field. So you know, a big part of, of my role is actually making sure that we have a really strong support staff for our players. So I'm really excited about our new S&C coach. We have an assistant S&C coach, uh, Ian Jones, um, who is currently with the USA women's side. He's been with the Cardinals. He's been with the Texans. He's been with Penn State. I think you probably know him, Pete. I do. So Ian comes in with an assistant, Aaron, you know, and like Aaron and and Ian's role is going to be to understand how the working week um, looks from my point of view. And then I've got to take their expertise into how that's going to look in terms of the training plan. So, you know, we're looking pre-season to get to a certain amount of meters per week. And of those meters, we're looking to get to a certain amount of high-speed meters that is going to replicate the pace of the game that we're trying to play. So without Ian's support and without Aaron, who's going to be assisting him, you know, that's not possible for for Rooney to do uh, effectively. And likewise, you know, I'm really excited about the forwards coach that I'm bringing in, um, who can't be named yet because they're going through the final bits of, of paperwork. but I think he's going to be one of the best uh, coaches in the league. 
and I think he's exactly what we need to try and get our set piece functioning because you know you look at Glendale you look at the Free Jacks you look right across the board you look at you look at the herd you look at San Diego from the front back you know they're, they're all very smart around the set piece around the breakdown around the defense area so while I historically might be perceived as an attack coach that's something that you'll generally do after you've established the important uh, pillars of your game which is again you know game understanding set piece and, and a defensive structure that our players are going to you know own and run with and be able to um, add value towards so um, certainly that's going to be the challenge early on with a, an entirely new coaching group and quite a few new players are coming in so um, we'll work our way in our in our new facility which is on Staten Island so you know, part of the change in the preseason obviously was the new staff and also we have a, a new training base where during the winter when the snow is here we have indoor gym, pool, uh, classroom, indoor uh, wrestling room, an area to do skills. We have an outdoor outdoor field. So it's just trying to get people in. And unique, you know, New York has a, has a unique feel about it. So there's no point New York planning their week like most teams do most professional teams do we've got to do it our way which is going to be slightly different and you know the players have bought into it and i'm looking forward to to giving it a go and seeing if it works well you know there's a um i i love the fact you're working with ian jones i've i work with him both at penn state and with the women's eagles and and he's really valuable and there's something that i think some mlr teams are missing around having a rugby specific snc which is, is that ability to be able to design a program I can't stress, I can't stress, sorry for butting in, I can't stress to me how important a rugby S&C coach is. You know, I'd like to think that every MLR team has one and every MLR team is using GPS to calculate players' distances and being smart around time on feet and, you know, using sports code, I'm sure most of them are. So, you know, I'm like you, I'm absolutely delighted to have somebody of Ian's caliber coming in to, you know, hopefully, um, you know, be able to design a, a program that's going to have our players being able to compete for longer at a higher pace. So, Greg, you know, as we as as you look at the season, one of the things about this season that's a little bit different is that there's only one bye week, and um, you guys are going to be hitting the road a lot early on. Um, how how do you think you're going to manage that? And and you know, do you think about um, how do you think about the season as a coach? Like, so if you can give some insights into kind of like how, you know, you've got the schedule, you're looking at the schedule, are there games that you target? You know, how do, how do you think about developing your team throughout the season? I think the key thing, first and foremost, you know, for me, if you want to look along a timeline, for the last three weeks, it has been, you know, player retention, player recruitment, which, as you said earlier on, is quite difficult this late at this late stage so it's about making sure the recruiting from the front to the back and particularly making sure that we have you know durable uh, people up front who have a history of you know playing a large portion of regular games in their season that's very important um i think you know we get into our pre-season stage so at the moment our players we start you know some form of of training just before christmas and players at the moment will be sticking to a program that Ian Jones has designed to start um, getting our players to prepare their body for large volumes and, and large velocities. So 
Um, you know, it's about making sure they're doing a lot of core work, doing a lot of mobility, so that when we start stacking weight on and we start running a lot, that we, we can be a bit more durable. And that'll be throughout the course of, you know, pre-season. We'll do a lot of um, game-based uh, sessions, you know, particularly on, on weekends during the month of January to try and prepare our game or prepare, prepare our players for the speed of the games they're going to face. And then, like every team, we'll have a number of pre-season friendlies where the result is completely irrelevant. It's about giving players the opportunity to play for um, long long periods of time, but also looking to see how we're implementing the plan that we, we will have worked on from, I suppose, the middle of December through to the end of January. And then when you go into the games, you know, I don't think we're in a position to be able to target games. We need to send our best players out for that week based on the opposition, based on form, to go out and win. Um, I'd love to be in a position where we can target weeks, but we just need to go full throttle. And that's why it's important to have you know, uh, depth in your squad and making sure that everybody's fit, everybody understands what their role is. So when they come in during the season, they're able to contribute because, I mean, this is one hell of a season. I mean, 16 games in 17 weeks. I mean, it's going to be a lot of attrition. <laughs> yeah, depth is going to be important. Yes. It goes back to my original point is like, you know, having, don't get me wrong, I'm so excited to coach Basta, so excited to coach. I, I was about to say the name of a new player. But, you know, I'm excited, to coach, <laughs> I'm excited to coach players coming in. I'm really excited to coach Nate Brakely again. You know, like, Nate Brakely is one of the most impressive human beings I've, I've had the opportunity to coach. And just to have him around the place, for example, I'm really excited about coaching these players. But it is going to come down to our peripheral players and how much they buy into it and how we as a coaching staff are able to guide them into a position where they're becoming more comfortable and confident and able to put their best foot forward because every team that play in the league, you're probably going to have to use between 35 and 40 players, I'd say. Um, so I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in previous years, I think the teams that have had some real um, injury problems actually got up into the 50s. So it, it's definitely a, a large group. So let's talk about some of those peripheral players. You know, you're, you're hitting the ground, you're, you're reviewing stuff. Who are some of the players on the fringe that, you think that we, you know, we've talked about the stars, but who are some of the players that you think can make a big step step up this year and, and have an impact for Rooney? Um, I'm really excited about a number of club players. So, you know, obviously when I, when I got into the role, it was important that I shared, I suppose, my vision with all the clubs in New York. Um, I'm going down to New Jersey this weekend for a coaching conference. I'm meeting the coaches, which I'm really excited about. I want to share what, our vision is as, as a club and, and the importance of the club game within that. So, you know, using the clubs, we're bringing in between three and five players that are excelling at the club level in New York. And I'm trying to bring them in and I'm, I'm excited about some of them. I'm really excited about some of their skill set. They're, a lot of them are, are raw. Um, obviously, when you've got 10 foreign players that you can bring into a squad at the moment, you know, and you don't have too many Americans coming through who are playing regularly at positions like hooker and nine and 10, you have to bring in foreigners. But my goal is that we can find some diamonds in amongst the club game. And I think then if we can bring a few people into trial, it'll then give the club the idea that they're actually a part of the Rooney franchise. So, you know, there's a couple of, for example, there's a player called Nick Griswold who plays for New Haven, who's at Quinnipiac. I think maybe he got into one of the, 
collegiate All-American honours list when he was playing for Quinnipiac Division 2. And I coached him about a year and a half ago and I loved what I saw, loads of talent. And I just believe that he is somebody who, if he gets given the right environment, might be able to excel. So he's going to come and join our group along with, uh, along with a few other local players. And um, they're going to be important. But then you have the stalwarts within the team. You know, you'll have your Mike Petries, You'll have your Harry Bennett's. You know, Mark O'Keefe, Will Leonard, Connor Wallace-Sims, Trevor Cassidy. You know, people, people who are excellent trainers who will just continue to work and, and be prepared to to buy into whatever it is that the players decide to do. So, you know, some of those players are, are first team players, but they still have, you know, the right idea of, of what we're trying to get across. And um, yeah, it's now still just trying to fill up uh, some, cer- some holes in certain positions. And uh, that's exciting as well. Well, you know, the uh, um, Rooney team has always had a good Irish flavor and I'm sure using your network, Greg, um, back in Ireland, there'll be some more opportunities for some of those players. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time this week to chat with us. Um, it's been great to catch up. We, uh, we, you know, will be eagerly following Rooney and all of the, you know, West Coast teams. Now you have some neighbours in the uh, um, Free Jacks and in Old Glory and then all the way down to um, um, Rugby ATL. So lots of um, excitement. So thank you, Greg, for taking the time of talking for, with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Good to uh, catch up and hopefully uh, we'll catch up again soon. There we go. Greg McWilliams, the new head coach at Rooney. And Pete, obviously interesting conversation. You guys both very established coaches in your own right. What sits ahead in 2020 for Greg? What are his challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, they they return much of their roster. I mean, they're uh, one of sort of the surprise signings, I think, of the offseason was Mike Petrie. And, and um, you know, I, I, I talked with Mike um, and, you know, he was really inspired by the vision that, that Greg laid out. And so, you know, Mike is, uh, um, you know, the fact that Mike came back tells you that he really believes there's something there. He's one of those guys that you know, has a job. And I think like the challenge with Rooney is there's so many good players like Nate Brakeley, who was their forward of the year. You know, he's a Dartmouth grad. He's a, um, I think he works for a data company. He's like a, you know, a computer scientist or data scientist. And there's no way he's going to quit that job to play for major league rugby. So Rooney's going to be one of those teams that for a few years will always have a core of very good players who are part-time. And so it's going to be managing those part-time players with the um, full-time players. But as we heard from Greg, the fact that they've got a training center now, um, a place that they can all go, a place that they can call home. I mean, it's just going to make everything so much easier. Um, You know, Greg talked a lot about strength and conditioning. That's so critical. I think, you know, as someone that's really had the um, pleasure of working with some elite rugby specific strength and conditioning people it's the first hire I would make I would find someone that was rugby specific Um, you know I used to have this argument with Dan Payne when he was the CEO of USA Rugby and he would say you know the best strength and conditioning science in the world is in the US and I think that's true but when in the strength and conditioning staff should be so integrated like there's nothing that you do and Greg talked about this that there's nothing that you do that's not linked to what you're you know, S&C coaches doing and the physical development of the players. So, so I think that like adding, um, you know, Bastereau, he talked about playing him in the centers. I mean, that's going to open up some opportunities for, 
Ben Foden out wide. I mean, I think Connor Wallace Sims, um, you know, their second leading try scorer was um, was was really really crit- you know it's going to be really critical for them. It's interesting that their two try scorers are their hooker and their wing. It tells you that they you know probably struggled a little bit in terms of the style that they confused. were going to play. I think that a little bit confused. I, th- I still think the mall is going to be critical for them in terms of scoring, but I think we'll probably see a little bit more of a wide open game. And you know as Greg said, he's he's like set piece and defense. So um, I think that's what we'll see early on. We might see a relatively simple game plan. And then we'll have some set piece, um, but we'll see a lot of set piece and defensive work for them. I think you know they've got a lot of games. You know they're they're, they're one of those teams that I think you know their first four games are away. Even one of their home games, um, you know, is uh, is not going to be in New York, and we'll talk about that a little a little later. I think. Um, so I think that there's a you know I, I think there's a huge amount of potential there. They've they've, they've got players. Um, you know I think John Quill is going to be an important player for them. Um, in in the back row, we talked about the issues that they've had in the back row. I mean, they also ended up playing Dylan Fawcett a lot at, at eight. So managing the depth and being able to work that out is probably going to be a challenge for Greg. I still think there's a you know he, he hinted that there's a couple more signings still coming in, um, which I think will be good. But you know they'll be uh, they'll be getting going um, in less than a month, so he'll hit the ground uh, pretty much running. Yeah, just around the corner, isn't it, Pete? Preseason starts, and I want to talk to you a little bit about. You know, the things that we saw in 2019, their inability to score tries. How does Greg, who had a big, you know, role with the US team on the attack side of things, what can he bring in? What wrinkles and what patterns can he bring in to enable Rooney to be more dynamic on offense in 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I think what we'll see from from Greg's attack is a little bit more dynamic play from the forwards and a little bit more interplay with the forwards and backs. I think you know, um, the Rooney attack last year kind of, you know, was pretty traditional in the sense that the forwards, you know, generated go forward to create space for backs. But I think we'll see, you know, the Dylan Fawcett's out wide looking to play. He's, they've got some skillful forwards that are able to play that game. Um, and I think that we'll see a little bit more of that interplay, having those forwards, you know, um, coming up in that first line with the backs behind them. Um, you know, I think that, that's probably what we'll see. And I think that's, that's what they'll do. They've got some great finishers out wide and they just need to make sure that they create the space for them um, using those two lines of attack. And unsurprisingly, let's talk about some signings. They go back to the Emerald Isle and to Ireland. Now, Greg, obviously an Irishman himself. Jason Higgins is a age grade product from the Munster system. 26 He's still, still got some miles left in him, but he joins a pretty decent, set of scrum halves in Mike Petrie, who is on the older side, and Marcus Walsh on the younger side. But now three scrum halves there. Matho Bassero is obviously the big signing. But like you said, they've got their core back from last year. And I think without injury, they're a lot more dangerous. But what do you think of the two biggest signings new to the club that have gone out and signed so far? Yeah, well, I mean, Greg talked about Bastaron. I thought it was pretty interesting that he's kind of laid down the law. You know, I think one of the knocks against him has been potentially his fitness and his willingness to train. And and Greg was pretty explicit in the interview about how he has to get fit, right? Um, and I think that, um, you know, that he has to work um, and he, he's looking for him to bring the professionalism. So I think one of the upgrades that they'll look for is the fact that as they bring in some of these experienced overseas players, that it will lift the training that they have. 
And then, you know, Higgins coming in is a really smart move. I mean, you need three scrum halves. You've got Mike Petrie. It'll be interesting to see how much Mike plays and how much travel he has. You know, I, I spoke to, um, you know, Marcus Walsh last year and he told me how much he was learning from Mike, but you need three quality scrum halves. I mean, I think they're, you know, hooker and scrum half and fly half are places where you need players that can step in and can, you know, really play well. So, um, I, you know, I think it's going to be interesting. Remember, you know, I think it was Chris Martina that stepped in last year at fly half, but he's not, you know, he can play there, but that's not his best position. So, I, you know, I think Greg still has some work to think about how you manage some of that depth because, you know, we all have to remember that there's only one buy this year. And so depth is going to be, is going to be really important. And so it'll be interesting. I'm not sure that we're done with Greg going over to Ireland and using his contacts over there to bring over a couple of more quality players. Let's talk a little bit about juggling that roster there because Chris Martina, Ben Foden, you got Harry Bennett, Luke Hume retires, which opens up an opportunity on the wing. I think you're going to see uh, uh, either Simo Smith or Demore Morrison. Gavin Demore Morrison kind of trying to establish themselves as that other wing opposite Connor Wallace Sims. Midfield, Leonard O'Keefe, Foden again comes into the mix with Matina and Bastaro. There's some good headaches there, but they have to stay healthy, right? For Greg. They they do. And I think that the, the big question will be sort of how do they do up front? Right. I think that it's really going to be, you know, because we talked about all of the backs. I mean, you know, they also um, uh, signed, um, you know. Um, so I'm trying to think about kind of like what their signings are, because they lost um, they lost the uh, Eagle prop that was playing for them. I'm, I'm having a bit of a like jet lagged um, brain loss. You got Paddy Ryan and James Rochford remainly up front. Yeah, so Paddy Ryan and James and James Rochford. But if we remember when James Rochford played tight head, he really struggled. And mm-hmm. who was the tight head that was on loan for them? I think he's down in Atlanta now. I'm I'm like having a, a big chance when big issue. So yes, thank you. So You're welcome. So you know, um, <laughs> I appreciate your help. So I so I think that you know they've got their two good props, but they had some injury problems there before. Um, you know, they've got some, I think it's going to be, I think there's some bolstering to do in that type five. I think that type five needs to be a little bit um, meaner. And I think that it'll be interesting to see that, you know, the staff that um, is developed around Greg to help him with that set piece. Cause he's a, he's a backs guy. So that'll be really interesting to see what support he gets and, um, and how he leverages that staff. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It should be good again. Always such a good area for rugby players in that New York area with uh, New York Athletic Club and Old Blue for years. But there's also a good metro district with the New York Rugby Club. So Matt McCarthy, he said to work that in there somehow. So I had a beer with Matt a few weeks ago and and there it is, New York Rugby Club making its way in. And, um, you know, up into Connecticut even, there's some good clubs up there. So they're always going to have a good stable of players to choose from. It's just a matter of signings. Me personally, I go front row. I think they need to bring in one more front rower, much to what you said about uh, the professor, James Rochford. Uh, great player, but you know had, had uh, up and down moments in 2019. Um, you need a good backup to Dylan Fawcett so he can stay at two. I don't want to see him play too much eight this year. John Quill retires from international rugby, which was announced just a few days ago. So he can just focus on Rooney in New York now, which 
I think will help his game a lot. Maybe he's your answer at eight, but I'm not sure where they're at line-out wise as well. A couple of big targets in the line-out for that lock position. Uh, I see Kyle Sumption has re-signed, but his commitments are pretty strong at West Point. So how much he can be involved in away games as well. There's so many intangibles, right, that come with the, like we talked about, the pros and cons of a big city team. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And I think that, um, you know, Sumption's one of those players that, uh, you know, probably hasn't fulfilled his potential because of injury. Um, and it'd be great to see him, you know, really play to his potential um, in year three. But like you said, you know, it's, it's, it's hard right now for some of these guys that are doing double duty, um, you know, especially when you're talking about sort of afternoon practices with Army and then evening practices with Rudy. Yeah, it's a long drive. It's in New York, but West Point to uh, Manhattan is not an easy drive, especially in the afternoon. Uh, believe me, you. All right, mate, let's, uh, let's do a little bit of a wrap-up from the World Cup in terms of Major League Rugby. So a lot of the talk for the USA in particular, Canada, I think uh, Uruguay actually performed the best out of the, the three nations that are most touched by Major League Rugby. But we, uh, we look at the USA first. MLR to 2023 a lot of positive chat coming out of the world cup even though we didn't win a game that we are now on an upward trend uh what do you think the mlr will mean in another four years as the eagles go to the world cup yeah i mean i think this is something that um you know greg and i talked a little bit about which is that we you know i think if you if you looked at um where the u.s struggled and you look at where teams do really well, and I think South Africa in particular does really well. It's in the transitions. So, you know, Mikey Teo, who's like a, you know, almost impossible player to tackle on a counter-attack from a kick in Major League Rugby, um, didn't have that space against, um, you know, I think against France and Argentina, right, with the two games that he played. And so you you see that they're, they're in those transitions about building kick chase or it, when you turn the ball over, the ability to be able to move it. Those are all challenges that, um, that the Eagles face. And so as, you know, the game becomes um, more professional, there's more, um, uh, more, you know, coaches on board, there's more analytics, there's more accountability for player performance. I think what we'll see is those transitions tighten up and then that'll prepare the Eagles for a, um, a higher level game. I mean, Greg talked about how much he learned. You know, I think, you know, I think his phrase was he learned more in five weeks than he did in the previous 20 years of coaching. And that's what happens when you're right at the edge of the top of the game where these little pieces, these little bits of detail are missed. And so I think that the Major League Rugby needs to do a better job. I think the coaches and teams need to do a better job in transition. I mean, players will be fitter. Um, they'll be, uh, you know, better physically prepared for the game, but their decision-making and, and their ability to play in those transitions when decision-making is so critical, that's where Major League Rugby really needs to improve to help the Eagles in 2023. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of difficult, isn't it? Because there's a lot of forecasting in it and, and we, we don't really have uh, a, a solid answer, but it's made just comes down to trusting the process that iron sharpens iron and the, and the level of competition increases here. It's only going to translate better for us, for Canada, for Uruguay, for whoever wants to be involved in the Americas up here. I mean, who knows what happens I mean, I mean, with the changing, you know, sorry, the changing economy of world rugby. Who knows what happens with Argentina in the next few years, Pete? 
Like the, the super rugby right. drain on, on the Jaguares, is, is that going to be too much? We've seen the Sunwolves dip out and maybe the, the, the flights to Argentina, especially for New Zealand and Australia, become too much. So do we have just an Americas and South and North America and the MLR and then the South America have their own professional comp that you can sort of bounce off each other. We have our own Champions League perhaps where we're going in and down to increase the, the workload. Who knows? There's just so much uh, unknown going into it. But I think the positives I, I love your, the negatives. I love your, yeah. I, I love your vision of the future of an American-centric rugby world, right? So where the Americas are really right there. I mean, the, uh, um, you know, World Rugby is trying to set up a, um, a professional league in South America. Um, unlike Major League Rugby, it'll be union-based, right? And so I think they were supposed to launch in 2020, but I, I, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. There's no doubt that Uruguay's performance at the World Cup was supported um, by their players playing in Major League Rugby. I think there's, you know, no doubt that the, uh, um, you know, the U.S. players were supported. I think one of the interesting things about Canada was that they were right in that transition where they had some players that were basically, you know, um, union-supported players who stayed in British Columbia who didn't play major league rugby, and yet they were still sort of starters for Canada. And yet mm -hmm. there were some starters like Brock Stoller who you know, who were stars in Major League Rugby that weren't selected. So I feel like there was some, there was some politics involved in Canada, but I think, you know, there's always talk about having a team in Vancouver, which I think would be great and, and well-deserved if they can get that together. So, you know, I think that Major League Rugby is going to help the U.S. Um, you know, the question is, when can the U.S. win two games? Right? And some of that's pool, like which pool you end up. But like, I think the U.S. should really be targeted to, to win two games. Um, and I think the you know, and, and when can we beat a tier one team? And so there's talk about the US hosting in 2027 or 2031. And I think USA Rugby has sort of, you know, um, laid the foundation by sending in, um, a, you know, interest that, that, that we'd be willing to host. I think that would be a game changer for Major League Rugby and for USA Rugby. But it's probably 2027 before we really see the benefit against the tier one nations. And 2023 will be seen as a bit of a transition. Yeah, I, I think performance, you, you'll get a good litmus test in 2023 of the direction that rugby's going here, right? For, for uh, the USA and for Canada. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it'll be a good test. I mean, we should be better. I, th I think that like one of the things that Greg talked about is that how everyone's still improving. And so even though with Major League Rugby will improve, but I feel like, you know, four more, four more years of Major League Rugby will be a bigger boost to the game here than it is probably anywhere. I know, you know, Japan are going to be fully professionalizing, um, fully professionalizing their league. And so that'll be a big boost. But I don't, I don't think anyone's going to get the boost that we get in terms of performance of our players the way Major League Rugby will do it for USA Rugby. Uh, we could do it. We could do a whole podcast on this, Pete. So we can't spend too much time on it because, you know, maybe maybe we'll do one down the road, uh, a little add on one. Because your thoughts on twenty twenty seven, what MLR means, you know, to rugby here, but also to the Eagles. And uh, there's a lot of chat online of does the MLR have a commitment to the national team, or you know, it's it's an independent business. So it does it really need to, you know, provide these grassroots for the benefit of the national team. There was talk about they should be playing more domestic players and less foreigners, but you know, MLR's job is to put on professional rugby and a quality product. And a byproduct of that is, I think, exposure and, and more 
top level games for players who are eligible for the Eagles. So, but as it moves down, who knows? Who knows? The landscape's yeah, always evolving and changing. I mean, I think that we're a long way away before we have really that conflict. Um, I think that, like in in the short term, um, in the short term, like in the next ten years, right? I think a successful Eagle side will be beneficial to USA Rugby, and a successful Major League Rugby will be will be beneficial to the Eagles. Um, you know, I think that um, when Major League Rugby potential, you know, if it becomes the financial behemoth of World Rugby when it becomes the place, you know, a little bit like Japan where stars can make the most money. I think that's, that'll be when there's some tension that exists, but we're, we're a ways away from that yet. And so I think the, you know, for the next two world cups, I think we'll be in pretty like everyone will be aligned in, in understanding the benefit of each. Yeah. A good friend of mine went and played in Japan and this is interesting. Part of his contract was that he would have to declare residency for Japan and play for Japan if selected and it's changed right now it's gone to five years so that is something that's not possible anymore but I mean Japan did a really good job of bringing in players to play in the the top league over there but make them Japanese eligible and you saw that at this World Cup you know look through some of those lineups uh, uh, you know I don't proclaim to be an absolute expert on Japanese surnames but quite a few of them didn't look too Japanese to me and that's I think I think it's a yeah I mean I think but I think that's just true of every team right and actually there's there's a number of um, uh, people that were born outside of Japan that moved there when they were quite young Um, I I thought just the same way like a a Ruben de Haas right so a Ruben de Haas is everyone says well how did he play for the you know South African playing for the US but he came here when he was 10 he just had South African parents and so he was playing rugby and then has an opportunity to play back in South Africa so I think there are a number of players there because I, I think I think Leach, their captain, is sort of similar to that. I think he ended up going over when he was like 18. Um, and I think every team, every team at the World Cup, England had it. Um, I was going to say, isn't uh, Tua Lange and Funapolo, isn't that like a South Brighton name on the beach down there? Well, I mean, I think, I, I think they both, <laughs> so I think both of them had rugby playing parents, right, that went to the UK to play. And they yeah. went there, I think, when they were very young, or maybe even they were born there. I'm not exactly sure. So, so yeah. So I think that that's just part of the global game. That I, you know, and I, I don't knock it um, for any team to be able to play the game within the rules. So, I mean, I mean, we benefit. We will. We will continue to benefit from absolutely the, um, the opportunities that Major League Rugby will bring, as we have benefited with how the collegiate game has created opportunities. I mean, AJ McGinty, AJ McGinty would not be an eagle if life did not life university did not offer him a scholarship to come here and get his degree and play rugby. Mm. So got, like and, the uh, college game is, is also important for us. Isn't it? And you know, how long does it take for a, uh, a college four years? What's the rule? Five years for residency. That's an interesting little proposition you're putting up there, Pete Steinberg. Well, we talk, the, rules talk about that time. the rules are different if they come here before they're 18. Well, hang on a second. The, is that the god of the podcast world, Aaron Castro's voice booming <laughs> over? So, if you move here before you're 18, what's the what's the law? So, like, if you're over 18, that's when the sort of like clock five works. years. Yeah. So, but if you're under 18 and you become a citizen of that country, because you Paul Mullen, no, not Paul Mullen. He's a bad one because his grandfather was American. But we've had other guys come in here 
at 16 years old. Like Hunko. Hunko yeah, came over for high school, right? Yep. And represent the U20s. And like, you know, we're here less than the three-year period. So, and you have to be eligible to represent at the U20 level. So. All right. All right. There you go. We've gone off track. Pete, let's uh, <laughs> slightly <laughs> bring a bit, a bit of sanity back into proceedings. Let's go around the ground. Around the grounds with our MLR news. And uh, Pete, you and I get new polos next year. Uh, no more X-Blades polos for us. We will be wearing Paladin polos next year, as we call the games, as MLR announces a new kit sponsorship deal with the apparel company Paladin. And as I've been informed, quite big down in New Zealand with the, the Mitre 10 Cup down there, an Australian company, I believe, and they have a presence in the U.S., not a big presence, not a big footprint, but a growing footprint. So MLR goes in that direction. What are your thoughts on that, Pete? Paladin polos for you and I. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I've been involved in um, a lot of, you know, kit transitions and things like that. I think Major League Rugby is, you know, I think that it'll be interesting to see what, you know, we all want to see what the jerseys look like, but I think that that's come out. I think there have been some teams that have kind of light launched their 2020 jerseys. So, you know, um, if, you know what it's like if you're a player. Um, uh, if, if you're a player, what you want to do is like, do the shorts fit, right? Do, is the jersey tight, but not too tight? Those are the things that you really care about. If you're the manager, you're like, does it tear easily, right? Are the sizes accurate? Um, and if you're a fan, you want to know, does it look good and can I wear it out? And so those are all the questions that we'll have as the Paladin kit kind of rolls out. But Dan, you look good in any polo. Thank you, Pete. So I'm so sure, my, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll, yeah. you'll rock it well. Yeah. I'm going to have to cut those carbs out now, I think, but, um, I'm okay with it. I got no problems with it. I know where the league's at and where they're headed. And this is, uh, this is early years, but. I look forward to the day with brand recognition when you can go into Nike, Adidas, you know, one of these stores, Under Armour, and find MLR stuff on the shelf. And I know we'll get there one day. And uh, but in the in the interim, I think this is good for the league. I trust the league has made the right choice, and the teams have made the right choice, and everyone will look very sharp in their Paladin gear in 2020, you included, Pete. So just remember, Thank though, you. Paladin, I if you are it. listening. Uh, no, no horizontal hoops, um, just plain and darker is slimming. So the darker, the better like dark blue or, or, a, or a black would be outstanding. All right. Do you like Las Vegas, Pete? You've, you've been um, to Vegas. I, I have been to Vegas. I've been to Vegas be many back. times. You might be going back. I, I hear this. Yeah. I Magic round. Uh, I'm going to steal that from from another code, but magic round. So we're going to have a Vegas showcase coming up in 2020 as well, as MLR will take is it five games total, I believe. It'll be two one weekend, three another weekend. So for five games total in Vegas, and uh, as maybe, no, 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 it's it's one for one weekend, one for and one. then four, four for another weekend. Five total. I just had my logistics a little mixed up. <laughs> but it's all right. So every so one round is truly magic round, Mr. Castro. Everyone's playing there that weekend. Yeah. And then other teams are on a buy or what's the deal? Give me the rundown uh, real quick. I mean, based on the based on what I see on the schedule, uh, the first one is 
I think New York versus somebody, and that's the first weekend, and I think it's the third weekend of MLR based on the schedule, what I've it's, seen. Yeah. It's New York versus the Free Jacks, right? On, yeah. On the first weekend. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it looks like. There's two. There's two cities that don't get along. That's a good one for you, Vegas. So I mean, I mean, I mean, the really, really smart thing that the league is doing is they're taking some of these teams that can't play early in their home games, right, and and giving them a home game option. But they're doing it in um, uh, in Vegas. And the other really thing, smart thing they're doing it is they're doing it the same weekend as or similar weekends to the one where the Vegas Sevens was held, which was obviously like a huge commercial success. I mean, I think it's going to be it, it strategically. I think it's a really smart move by the league. I think, you know, it's going to be operationally more difficult and um, it'll be really interesting to see, um, you know, how the marketing goes. I mean, I, I think it's going to be some great weekends. Um, it looks like, you know, that second weekend in February or the, you know, the weekend of February 15th and 16th is like, you know, it's rugby heaven if you end up going to Vegas, right? You get to see a bunch of games. You get to see some of the best teams. Um, there's some great matchups. Like, like you get to see all the new teams, um, almost all the new teams that, you know, the expansion teams. I mean, what a great weekend to head to Vegas and um, see so much rugby. Yeah, listen to this for a Valentine's weekend. So all you people out there with <laughs> uh, partners for your significant other, what better way to treat them to a romantic getaway to Las Vegas than Warriors Free Jacks on Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, Rooney, Austin, and then Sunday afternoon, Toronto, Houston. And if that's, you know, if you're in the Washington... Uh, We'll see is that the DC area. Well, they, there's also two more. Well, that's, that's a massive weekend. Because then you've got Legion Raptors that night in Vegas. And New Orleans will be playing Rugby Atlanta in New Orleans, DC, Seattle in DC. So there are four teams not involved in the Magic Weekend. So it's not as magical as the typical Magic Weekend where all the teams are there. But it's somewhat magical. It's like... David Blaine. It's not David Copperfield, who's the original Magical Weekend. It's more of like that David Blaine, who's still pretty magical. How's that? Is that good? I've got no idea what, what you're talking about. But oh, let's get on to the next. You don't like, you don't like, like magic? Like, like... <laughs> so let's get on to the next news, right? So, so the last piece of news or the, the last big piece of news is um, the uh, change in the um, Utah coaching staff and one of your... Um, Australian compatriots Chris Latham is um, coming on board as, as as the head coach. It's been an interesting um, an interesting coaching staff and support staff that they've announced. Well, one of the if not, you can put an argument in there for Matt Burke as well, but probably the most decorated fullback in Australian rugby history. Uh, Chris Latham has a has a World Cup final appearance in '03. And uh, great try scoring machine, really. He, he was he was outstanding. Like you think back to those early two thousands, late ninety backlines for the uh, Australians, and and you look at them now, and it's hard to believe it's the same country. But uh, I can sit here and cry about that all afternoon. We won't do that. But yeah, it's a good pickup. They also get Sean Davies. Uh, we'll see what happens with Sean in terms of playing, but he would add some depth to nine with uh, Johnny Eaker as well already there. Maybe Sean uh, plays that Mike Petrie style role where, you know, in the 23, but more of a coaching and mentoring role for young nines going through. Sean Pittman, another assistant from the USA side, he uh, he joins as well. 
They have Brandon Sparks, who many people in Northern California will know from his involvement at rugby up there and now over in Michigan as well as the director of rugby and some other names as well, which I'm actually frantically trying to find as I'm talking to you, Pete. So maybe if you want to well, save I mean, me from drowning. Well, <laughs> so, you know, well, I think this is a big announcement. I mean, I think Sean Davies going back, I mean, he was a star at BYU. He's obviously excited to get back to Utah. I think that's a great pickup. Um, you know, Chris Latham comes off his World Cup experience with Samoa. So, you know, he's not just a good former player. He's coached at the highest level. Although this will be a big, a big test for him, I think, as, as, as a head coach. And, you know, Brandon Sparks, I've, I've spent a lot of time with Brandon. He, was, um, he worked with the Seattle Seawolves as a sort of coaching advisor um, in their first year in their um, major league um, the, when they won the inaugural championship. So he knows major league rugby. Um, I love the mix that they have of sort of bringing in, um, you know, an international coach, but then surrounding him with local guys. I think that's, that's really smart. And I don't think Sean Pittman gets as enough, has received enough credit for how well we scrummed. And even, you know, even in the lineout, we did very well. I mean, the improvement of the lineout more defense from that first game against England through the rest of the tournament was incredible. And the scrum was probably the strongest scrum, um, certainly the U.S. has had since Chris Ozentowski was the head coach in 2007, sorry, the, the tight head in 2007. And so adding someone like Sean Pittman, I mean, it's a great step for his career, but I expect to see some real improvement in their, um, in their set piece. So you are, you are a coach by, by trade. So I get you going on that side of things. I'm looking at it from a different perspective in terms of, a networking perspective. Chris Latham opens up doors in Japan, Samoa, New Zealand, and Australia with his recruitment. Sean Pittman opens up doors all across the US with his role as the assistant coach. Kids are going to want to go and play for an assistant coach. It's been the blueprint here for years. You want to make the Eagles, you want to get noticed, go play at a club with one of the assistant coaches. It's the easiest and quickest way to get noticed. And uh, so Utah adding him opens up another pipeline of talent. Sean Davies, current player, knows a lot of the current players, has a great network. He's a great guy. People are going to want to go there and play with Sean, reunite with Sean again. It's not a, a long trip from Utah to Colorado. So where he spent quite a few years with the Glendale Raptors, he may be on the phone to some of those players and saying, hey, come on over. So from that perspective, I think it opens up huge opportunities for networking for Utah. And I think you'll see them change significantly in how they look in 2020 to 2019 just on the back of, of that network and we've seen some signings trickle well, in we'll, we'll dig into those a little on another show but there's been a lot of signings it, it's almost been a flurry hasn't it? the last couple of uh, weeks since the world or the last week since the world cup signings just getting thicker and thicker yeah i mean i think we need to push that we're we're, we're getting to the end of our time and i need to um, people are looking at me in the uh, um, in this building, wondering why I'm still here um, because it's getting a little bit late. But I think you know I would add to your networking that um, I think you know Brandon Sparks brings the college game and the knowledge of, of of the college game, and I think that's that's important. So I agree with you. I, I really like the idea that they've now created sort of a you know um, Kimball Carr has created sort of a, a staff that allows him to sort of know who are the best college players, who are the best MLR players, you know, who are the best Eagles that we want to bring in because they've got the experience of working with them and then someone that can reach out overseas. So very, very um, interesting staff. I, I, think, I think we'll see a big improvement with Utah. 
Um, you know, they were an almost team last year. They've certainly got the talent to be um, a playoff contender, and I think they've got a staff to get them there. Pete, great to talk to you, mate. Don't get in trouble at Cambridge. Uh, more of an Oxford guy myself, but that's okay. You hang out. <laughs> And we will catch you next time. For Pete Steinberg, our producer, Aaron Castro, this has been the MLR kickoff. We will catch you next time.